0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, 33 to 46, as Dr. Newfeld presents a message entitled, The Stone the Builders Rejected.
1: When one of my daughters was a little girl, we watched the Jesus video together. And I must say, I probably wasn't entirely wise in this. She was too young, and I didn't consider the reaction of a little girl to the scenes of the crucifixion. It truly frightened her. It was the first time she'd ever seen it, and she was horrified. You know, it was bedtime, and then she was in tears, and she said, Daddy, why did they treat Jesus that way? And you know, I don't recall my answer, but I do recall the pain on her face and the tears in her eyes. I'll never forget a reaction she's a little girl, was trying to comprehend how the Jesus whom she loved so dearly should be so despised and hated so desperately by others. You know, Perhaps that's not just the question of a little girl. All of us should try to comprehend that. Today, that's what we're going to attempt to do. How is it possible that Jesus can be both the cornerstone and the stone the builders rejected? When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the books that retell the story of the life of Christ, one is quickly struck by the fact that one-third of all the material in those books are about the last week of Jesus' life, or I guess more technically, eight days from Sunday to Sunday. For the Gospel writers, the entire life of Jesus was leading up to this week, and this week declared the meaning or the reason why Jesus came. The week begins with Christ's triumphal ride into Jerusalem, in which he is being proclaimed as the King of Israel and the Messiah. From the human perspective, Jesus' popularity is growing, but we know this is only temporary. In fact, Jesus didn't think he was becoming more popular at all. Luke records that as he approached the city of Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday— that he began to weep, knowing that his arrival into Jerusalem would actually expose the wickedness of the city and eventually spell its destruction. Jesus knew that Palm Sunday would trigger a series of events that would bring hope to many, but also bring the most frightening judgment to others, and, and that was Palm Sunday. That evening, Jesus went out to Bethany, where he spent the night. And when Monday arrived, as Jesus went into the city again, He passed by a fig tree that stood at the edge of a field. According to the book of Leviticus, trees and crops that stood at the edge of the field were not to be harvested. They were to be left for the poor and the aliens. That not only meant that travelers and poor people wouldn't starve, but there was a symbolism behind that. God had given Israel his fruitful land, and they were not only to be blessed by God's goodness, they were also to be a resource of rich blessing to the world, the poor, the Gentiles. That's what God had intended when he told Abraham that he would be blessed and that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Israel was called to live under God's provision and to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. But this fig tree, I mean, that Monday morning, it was barren. You see, with fig trees, and at least that's how I understand it, the fruit of the fig tree was to appear at the same time as the leaves. The appearance of leaves in full bloom would have meant that it was full of figs. And as it stood at the edge of the field, it could be legally eaten. But this fig tree had the appearance of being fruitful with all of its leaves. But when one looked closely, there were none. Jesus used this as a symbol for the barrenness of Israel. And so, looking at the barren tree, Jesus pronounced a curse on the tree, and it begins to wither immediately, so much so that by the next day, it's already dead. These are severe words. They are Christ's curse on the nation of Israel itself. And with that, we're left to wonder, what had the Messiah come to Jerusalem to do? I mean, what was he intending? Was he coming to pronounce a curse? In fact, later on, when the disciples observed the tree— Jesus predicted that if one had the faith of a mustard seed, one could speak to this mountain, he said, and it would be cast into the sea. And now we see what he meant. He had the faith that he could speak to the mountain. And now we know that the mountain was the temple bound in Jerusalem, and it, that is the temple itself, would be removed and cast into the sea. And today, if you go to the very temple mount where the temple once stood, you'll find only a mosque there. There's, there's no temple at all. Jesus' word of cursing have lasted for 2,000 years. I mean, that's high drama. Monday was every bit as dramatic as Palm Sunday before it. From the cursed fig tree, he walks into the temple where the outer court or the court of Gentiles was filled with noise. See, it was Passover, the yearly celebration in which Israel remembered God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And so to get ready for sacrifice, the temple was filled with animals marked up at inflated prices in which you had to change your money to temple money and you get hosed there. And then you buy inflated prices for sacred sheep to be sacrificed, and so you got hosed a second time. And what's more, all of that was done in the court of the Gentiles. There's there's no place for Gentile worship, just the buying and selling of sacrificial animals at at remarkable prices. The temple was just like the, the barren fig tree. And in fury, Jesus grabs a whip and he kicks over the table of commerce and throws everybody out and he screams out, my house will be called a house of prayer. You know, how fascinating. He doesn't call it God's house. In fact, he's saying, it's, it's my house. And everyone's shocked. And the entire city, packed with pilgrims, all who have come to worship at Passover, are amazed. The entire city is buzzing. It's Monday. What would happen on Tuesday? Well, on Tuesday, the empire strikes back. I mean, the religious teachers are furious. There's no way this man should be allowed to dominate the Passover. But what could be done? Just a few days before the triumphal entry in Bethany, he had raised a prominent Jew, a man named Lazarus, from the dead. Already everyone was talking because Lazarus' corpse was already rotting in the grave. It was in a state of decay, and and he raised that man from the dead. So he was becoming so popular that now, as he entered in the temple and he called it his house, no one stopped him. Well, the religious leaders thought, we're going to stop him. What would it take, they thought, to win the hearts and minds of the people away from Jesus? And so just like in dirty politics today, where one tries a smear campaign, that's what the religious leaders decided to do to Jesus. And so Tuesday begins with a series of confrontations, anything but anything, to create a scandal. And so the questions begin, by what authority do you cleanse the temple? And if he says, by the authority of God, then they'll say, well, who says? And then the second question, should we pay taxes to Caesar and the Roman occupiers? And if he says no, they're going to report it to Rome. And if he says yes, well, he's going to be a traitor to Israel. And then another question, how does a woman married to seven men sort it out at the resurrection of the dead? And then another question, which is the greatest command God ever gave? I mean, anything but anything to discredit him and gain the advantage. See, what's at stake on Tuesday is swaying the crowd. If they can get him to slip up just once and say something stupid, well, they can turn the crowd against him and they can safely crucify him without ramifications. That's what they wanted. They wanted him dead. It's amazing how different the religious leaders and Jesus saw things. For the religious leaders, this was a struggle over power. And for Jesus, this was the fulfillment of the plan of God. And so standing in the temple on that Tuesday, with crowds surrounding him, that would have included the Jewish religious leaders who were firing questions in his way, he tells a story, it's a parable, and everyone's listening. It's found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet.
0: This month, Dr. Newfeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we wanna send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Let's begin with this understanding. This parable is a story told to discredit the Pharisees and the Jewish religious teachers. So let me retell it by explaining exactly what Jesus meant by it. The first character in the story is the master of the house. This is God. The house is probably all of God's creation, but it's surely this world. God owns this world and is master of it in that he, by the rights of ownership, rules the entire house as he sees fit. Second, the master's wise planning. He decides for his own reasons to plant a vineyard. I mean, over and over again in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called God's vineyard. And so within this world, the master planted Israel as his special project so that Israel would be fruitful. But God did more than plant it. He put up a fence around it to protect it from animals. He built a wine press right in the vineyard so you could squeeze out the grapes right there and he put a watchtower to guard it from thieves and fire. In other words, it was planted by the owner in such a way as to maximize its yield. This would be a vineyard that gave the owner a return on his investment. And that was God's dealings with Israel. They were given special advantages and opportunities, so they would be a nation who both lived under God's blessing, but also became a conduit of God's love and blessing to the whole world. Now we're introduced to a new character in the story. These are the tenants. You know, for some reason, we don't know why, the owner decided to lease out his vineyard. The owner reserved the right to expect from the tenants a return on his investment. As we've already learned, the tenants, according to verse 45, were the chief priests and the Pharisees, or the Jewish religious leaders. And by extension, the tenants were any religious leaders that Israel had in their history. Their job was to tend Israel so that Israel would produce fruit for God. But the religious leaders are feeding themselves off the vineyard, but they would not pay their due to God. And so the owner sent his servant. One demands tenants to pay up, and these servants are the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, the shameful treatment of the prophets was, of course, a matter of record. Jeremiah 20, verses 1 and 2, tells of how the prophet Jeremiah was mercilessly beaten. And 1 Kings 18 tells how Queen Jezebel had killed hundreds of prophets in her day. 2 Chronicles 24 records how King Joash had the prophet Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, stoned to death. You know, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, speaking of the great heroes of the faith, makes allusion to some of the prophets of Israel. So here I'm reading Hebrews 11, 37 to 38. It says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. I mean, that was a prophet's life. No wonder when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he was desperately looking for an excuse just to get out of this. The life of a prophet was brutal. Jesus himself spoke clearly to this and wept over this. He probably said these same words on Tuesday, and they're recorded in Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. You know, whenever a prophet would come, the tenants, the leaders of Israel would mistreat and they would kill them. And later on, just before the first Christian martyr was stoned, realizing the Jewish religious leaders were going to kill him, he utters these words. He says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That's why when we get to verse 37, it seems so shocking. I mean, if an owner found that his tenants treated his servants in this way, which owner would then send his son? It, It seems like madness. I mean, how would they respect the son of the owner? So I come to the conclusion that the only explanation for verse 37, or for that matter, for the coming of Jesus into the world, is an act by God who sends his son to be killed by the tenants. But Jesus is leading up to something. It's found in verse 38a. It says, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. In other words, Jesus is saying to the chief priests and the Pharisees, I know that you recognize me. In other words, the persecution of Jesus is not a difference in theology, but it is done because of hatred of God. They recognized him as the son. I mean, how could they not recognize him? I mean, the lame walked, the blind saw, demons were cast out, lepers were cleansed, and what's more, on at least three occasions, someone had been raised from the dead. No, 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 no. What happened during Passion Week was not a theological debate that went horribly wrong. See, what happened on Passion Week was the expression of the most virile and passionate hatred that anyone can possibly have against God. Here comes the heir. Now, the second thing I see in verse 38, listen. Come, let us kill him and have the inheritance. Now. How does one get God's inheritance? Well, by killing the son. And in practical terms, I think this means that the chief priests and the Pharisees realized that as long as Jesus was there, they would always have to give an accounting to God of their treatment of the people of Israel. But if they killed Jesus, this nasty problem would come to an end. See, the reason they killed Jesus is because they wanted a religion that didn't need the nuisance of having to contend with the real God. They could construct a faith in which they said all the right things and they acted according to their own rules and not God's. They could, for instance, tell someone that whatever that person owed to their parents, I mean, they could give it to the temple and, and then they were covered. That's one example of how they bent the rules, but the examples just go on and on. They could convince themselves that God was pleased with them with, without having ever to confront the real God. See, don't you realize? This is a basic denunciation of all of us. You know, The ancient Jewish people are not worse than we are. They are, in fact, a mirror that shows us what we're all like. I mean, think of it. Idols, gods that we make out of our own imaginations and out of our own desires. I mean, they're always popular. We want to be told that we're good people. We don't want to be confronted with our sins. Look at verse 39. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see this? Jesus is not fighting the Pharisees for popular support. He knows they're going to kill him. And when that's done, when they've killed the son, what will the owner do, he asks of them. And then they answer the question for themselves. Look at verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And that's when Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. He calls himself the stone the builders rejected. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men. Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? See, the interesting thing about Psalm 118 is that it may have been written about David. Remember Goliath despised David, and he was wrong. Remember when Samuel showed up at Jesse's household to anoint the next king of Israel? Not Samuel, nor anyone in David's family thought that that little runt would be the king. He was the stone the builders rejected, but God had chosen him. And if that was true of David, how much truer it was of Jesus. Just like David who was rejected by those around him, Jesus was rejected by those around him. And yet, he's the cornerstone. He is the keystone of the whole building. And and, and notice here how the image changes from a vineyard to a house. And this house, this key foundation stone was rejected by the Pharisees, but he has become the most important stone. And that's the point of Easter. It's not just that Jesus needed to die for our sins. Of course, it's that. But it's also this. When the real God shows up, we're all so sinful that we would have gladly put God to death if we could. We have all despised God, and God sent his son into the vineyard knowing that we would kill him. But in so doing, God provided mercy for the killers of Christ. Oh my, have you considered it? we who are hateful of God, found that this very same God whom we hated, sent his son to die for us. That's the message of Easter. He is the stone that we have rejected, yet this very rejected stone is our savior.
0: The glorious message. John, as we enter the Easter season as the church, we see Jesus as something, but in fact, the entire world sort of celebrates Jesus and his character in a, in a very unique way outside of what we read about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, Jesus will continue to be the fascination of the human race. It's just because of who he is we have never had a man in this world even remotely like Jesus. And we just have to simply admit that. I mean, all the world's leaders, all the world's religious teachers, whatever prophets there have come or gone, false, true ones, everything else, Jesus simply outranks them all. And all of us understand that. But because I think he is so you know, controversial and because he confronts us in our own sin and and because he demands repentance of us, it's become so normal for us, therefore, to remake Jesus in our own image so that we find our own vision of Jesus to be acceptable. And so we have this, you know, this this thing that's going on all the time. We, we're attracted to Jesus, but we're repelled by him at the same time.
0: Thanks, John. Join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The central mission of the church is the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So join Dr. John Newfeld as he walks us through a video series on missions called The Missionary God. The Missionary God is available for viewing at backtothebible.ca or on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. And we encourage you to pray for opportunities to be messengers of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings real hope in difficult times. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.